In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Well, as I was explaining to the children, God is not afraid to talk to us about dying and about death. In fact, if you read the Bible cover to cover, you can see right away that that's really the main theme. The theme of death and the theme of life and above all, of eternal life. As I said, and as I mentioned to the children, a lot of people don't like to talk about death, as though if we don't talk about it, don't think about it, it won't affect us. But no one can cheat death in that way. Death cannot be manipulated. Death cannot be misrepresented or misused. It just is what it is. We have no control over it. Death is a very sobering reality. I did not know this, but I found it interesting that there is, in fact, in the legal system, an old maxim. In Latin, it goes like this, nemo moraturus presumitur mentire, which means a man will not meet his maker with a lie in his mouth. That legal maxim is the basis for a very unusual practice in the legal field. A person's last words, their dying words, can be admitted as evidence in a courtroom, even though they were not under oath, obviously, nor uh, is there any opportunity for cross-examination. But it is the opinion of many over the centuries that a person's last words are the words of truth. And so it is with many last words. I'm not going to share any of those with you tonight. There's plenty of examples of those you can see on the internet. Oftentimes those last words are a kind of commentary on the particular person's life. So tonight let's look at the words of our Lord Jesus. How he teaches us about death and life in his own suffering and in his own death on the cross. We begin with Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 34. There were two criminals led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then the first words of Jesus from the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. People have wondered, who was Jesus speaking to there? Was he talking down to those soldiers who had just crucified him and who were just, quote, following orders, therefore they knew not what they were doing? Was he speaking to the Jewish people who cried for his blood and for his crucifixion? Well, those might be initial thoughts that people might have who don't really know the Bible very well, but if you've studied all the rest of the words of Jesus, of the prophets, the apostles and evangelists, you can tell very quickly who Jesus was speaking about when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was speaking to all of us. Paul leads off. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Peter said, Christ suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us, we are the unjust ones for whom he died, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus himself said, 
I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was speaking to all of us. There is a great temptation, and it is a common practice in the world to dance around the reality of death, to avoid it, to deny it, to presume that uh, we are righteous and that somehow even if this happens, everything is going to be okay. Everyone else oftentimes is thought to be wicked. But those who understand what the Lord is saying here, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are the ones who drop to their knees. Instead of in denial, they are in repentance. And for them, the words are beautiful and comforting. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we don't need to parse up the kinds of sins and how intentional they were and how much damage they might have done. All sin destroys. All sin brings death. All sin is something we really don't know. It's a form of insanity that came into the world when the first insanitizer, the devil himself, brought that into the minds, into the hearts and souls of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And yet it is for them that our Lord Jesus came to die. The first word from the cross. The second words from the cross, from Luke chapter 23, verses 42 to 43. Jesus said, Lord, remember me when you come into your... Jesus. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus began talking about forgiveness in general. And the second words from the cross are a specific application, the saving of a single soul, the absolution and the proclamation of forgiveness to one of those thieves who did come to repentance. Luke, in particular, has a heart to reveal for us how Jesus cared for the outcasts of society. It is in Luke's gospel that we read about this tax collector named Zacchaeus. It's in Luke's gospel that we hear about the prodigal son. And it's in this gospel that we also meet the thief on the cross. I once met a police officer who told me he was an atheist, and the reason he was an atheist was because he told me he had heard so many jailbird confessions, as he called them. People who got in trouble with the law got caught and were thrown into jail and immediately became very repentant. He did not like the idea that God would let people off so easy through repentance and forgiveness. As I said, people deny the reality of death and they really deny the seriousness of sin at the same time. This is where pride leads us. We look down our noses at other people and the thing that grinds us the most is the thought that somebody's going to get away with not having to pay their full dues. Look at me, I've lived my life, I've done this, I've done that in a good way. Why should they get off so easily? But people like that have not seen the bigger picture and don't know the reality of their relationship or lack thereof with God. Imagine a college 
high jumper competing against elementary children. Would he or she jump higher than the children? Would he or she easily take first place in any contest? Absolutely. But what if the real contest is jumping from here to the moon? What does it matter whether someone can jump a few feet higher than somebody else? What does it matter if someone's righteousness may be a little bit better in an outwardly, worldly way than somebody else? The thief on the cross knew he was a sinner. He turned to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, and he received it. Forgiveness is forgiveness, and we don't add anything to it. As John said, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The third word from the cross of our Lord Jesus is recorded by John chapter 19. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. In this third word from the cross, we see Jesus teaching us something very important about the family how important the family is. But even more important than that, he also shows us how we do not make family into our idol. He was very clear about this. Whoever loves father or mother or children more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus loved his mother. And even in his dying moments, made preparations for her and for her life, entrusting her into the care of his beloved disciple, John. Jesus shows us the importance of family, but he also shows us the real way to love your family is to love God first and to seek his salvation for yourself and for them. And so Jesus knew that he had to die. He couldn't use his power to come down off that cross and make Mary happy and take care of her for the rest of her life, what good would that do ultimately? He died for her. He died for us. He died to save all of us, all of our families. Fourth word from the cross comes from Mark chapter 15. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated by God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders thought that Jesus was crying out for Elijah. And they mocked him. Wait and see, they said, whether or not Elijah will come to take him down. These men were grasping for any excuse to prove that Jesus was a false messiah. In the Old Testament, Elijah is never referred to by the abbreviation Eli. It was not Elijah that Jesus was talking about. They totally misunderstood. Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22, another great messianic passage of the Bible. In that psalm, it speaks of a man who is afflicted, a man whose hands and side and feet are pierced, a man whose garments are taken over by people who cast lots for them. There's no one in history who has better fulfilled that psalm than Jesus himself. But the important thing about that psalm are those opening words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's what we call a rhetorical question because we know the answer is he doesn't forsake us. In fact, that is exactly what the psalm goes on to say. Yet when Jesus quotes that psalm, he is the only person in the whole world for whom it was not a rhetorical question. Jesus was forsaken. Forsaken by his disciples, forsaken by every sinner, forsaken even for a moment by his own Father himself for our sakes. Those are beautiful and powerful realities for us to think about. Jesus' suffering was, was physical, yes, but it was this spiritual suffering that was by far the worst. The fifth words from the cross again come from John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Anyone who has experienced battle and have actually been on a battlefield will be familiar with the cries for water. Men who are torn and who are bleeding, whose body fluids are going into the ground, know that they need to be replaced. They cry for water. Just as Moses was taught by the Lord, the life is in the blood. Jesus is on the ultimate battlefield of the ultimate war between good and evil. Ironically, John tells us that three times in the gospel, Jesus said, anyone who comes to him, he will give them drink and they will never thirst again. But Jesus on the cross thirsted for us so that he could become for us that living water. The sixth words from the cross, from John chapter 19, verse 30. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This last word, it is finished, uh, is a very famous Greek word, tetelestai. And it was the word that businessmen used when they had come to the end of all their negotiations. In our parlance, we would say, it's a deal. It's a contract. It's a covenant. It's completed. Most of us like deals that are win-win kind of deals, where both parties find themselves doing well in the interaction. But we also know there are some contracts that are very unfair. There are times when people are forced into very bad business deals that they cannot avoid. This was one that Jesus was forced into, you might say. Jesus was forced into it by our sins, but he voluntarily took it up, knowing what had to be done. In his baptism, the contract was sealed. Jesus spoke of it often throughout his ministry, as he did in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, and to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we see what Jesus was all about. This was his contract, obedience to the law, praying and preaching, his love for the loveless, his wearying compassion for the sick and the demon-possessed, 
His patience with his disciples, his restraint of showing vengeance to his persecutors, his physical and spiritual suffering, all of that was for us. And all of it is finally fulfilled in the words, it is finished. The ransom has been paid in full. Last of all, again from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. The sun was darkened. The veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Jewish people have a bedtime prayer called the Bedtime Shema. Included in this prayer is a verse from Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died with part of this children's prayer on his lips. But it's also significant that Jesus added something to that prayer. This prayer is directed to his Father. Just as the first words from the cross were a prayer to the Father, so also the last words from the cross are directed to the Father. I don't know if the centurion standing by that cross had ever heard that child's prayer before, but he understood what it was all about and what was really going on here. When Jesus finally died with that children's prayer on his lips, the centurion rightly said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the beauty of Jesus' faith and his love. The perfection of that divine relationship we see in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are so blessed, all of us here today, to know these last words of Jesus, as well as the first words of Jesus, as well as everything else he has ever said. These are the words, as Peter said, of life. They are the words of truth in a world of lies, the, world, the, wor the words of love in a world of hate. The words of forgiveness in a world of sin. They are the words of hope in a world of despair. In Jesus' name, amen.